So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of linen, of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot at his second in command. The men shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in, in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Peneah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the lands produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sands of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping record because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of, of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has, forgot, has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and, and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph said, had said, there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh said, then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the world. Uh, let's bow in prayer, shall we? And uh, we'll pray for ourselves. We'll also pray for the kids as they learn God's word. Father, we want to thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through, through the uh, pages of Scripture. And uh, we thank you, Father God, that we learn about your dealings with your chosen people and uh, the great story of history which points us to Jesus and the great salvation that he has won for us on the cross. Help us and help the children uh, to focus on your word now and by your spirit to be uh, informing our minds and transforming our hearts. And so we pray these things now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know how many of you remember Mike. Mike was, a, Mike was a, an elderly man. He was a godly man. By the way, can everyone hear me loud enough, loud and clear? Just wanted to check that. Um, okay, because I can't tell up the back here. Uh, up the front. But Mike was a, 
Mike was a, a very godly man. He was an older man. Uh, he used to come to church here at the 10.30 service. And I thought that I knew Mike. We used to chat over morning tea. I used to uh, meet with Mike and a few other people once a week uh, for a Bible study group and we would read the Bible, study the Bible, we would talk, we would share with one another, we would pray. And uh, sometimes Mike would tell me a bit about his life. We'd, he'd tell me about his work as an engineer. Uh, he'd tell me about his children, his uh, grandchildren, how proud he was of his grandchildren. And uh, he would tell me about just how faithful God had been towards him throughout his life. Uh, Mike spoke with a Polish accent. But uh, funnily enough, being Polish and uh, his life in Poland was not something that he shared much about. It didn't really seem to come up very much in conversation. And I wasn't quite sure why that was the case until the day of his funeral. So in 1939, Mike was 16 years of age, a young boy entering into manhood, uh, happily living with his family in Poland, when the Germans invaded. Now, the Germans hated the Poles, or the Nazis, rather, I should say. The Nazis despised the Poles. They looked down on the Poles. And at age 16, Mike was um, captured and they made him a slave. Uh, Mike was put into slavery, uh, working in appalling, atrocious conditions in Russia, building roads for the enemy and for their war effort. I don't know how he did it, but in 1944, Mike escaped and he... Uh, found his way across Europe and eventually ended up in England from where, after the war, he migrated to Australia. And many of us only learned about this whole section of Mike's life uh, after he died because it was a, a part of his life, it was a reality for him that that he didn't want to talk about, that he didn't want to remember even. I mean, Poland, slavery, Russia, that was his old life. And he couldn't change history. He couldn't turn back the clock. He couldn't go back to that time in his life when he was happily living in Poland with his family and his friends. But he could choose to forget it. He could choose to forget his old reality and to enjoy the sunshine of his new reality, which was Australia. A good job, a loving wife, a caring family, a comfortable home. This was his life. This was his reality. And these were the things that he wanted to talk about. Now, it's understandable, isn't it? It's, when you think about it, that is really understandable. I mean, sometimes horrible things happen to people, things which are so drastic that they change 
the course of that person's life, they change that person's reality and they have no choice other than to accept their new reality for good or for bad and to make the most of their new reality. Now in Genesis chapter 37, uh, a young young boy, a year or so older than what Mike was, but at 17 years of age, a young man entered into a new reality. And that young man's name, of course, was Joseph. Now, I think it's hard for us to uh, uh, imagine the change that happened for Joseph. Joseph, of course, he was his father's favourite son. Joseph was the, uh, the, the son of the father's favoured wife. Joseph was the son whom the father listened to when he told stories about the brothers. Uh, Joseph was the one who the father had declared his love for him by giving him a very special uh, cloak to wear. But on one dreadful day, a long way from home, something happened which changed his reality, which changed the very course of his life. And I think that it's hard for us to imagine the confusion and the sense of helplessness that Joseph would have experienced. I suppose if you've, if you've watched you watch the movie 12 Years a Slave, you know, if you've watched that movie, it's been on at the movie theatres over the last couple of months, it's about true story about an African-American free man named Solomon Northup who lived in New York. He was a free man, he was a businessman, he had a family and... And one day he was kidnapped and he was taken down south where he was sold on the slave market. And so in one sense maybe that captures something which was Joseph's reality because Joseph too, the favourite son of Jacob, suddenly was torn from his life and was a prisoner on a one-way trip to an unknown life in Egypt. Now, how did Joseph deal with what had happened to him? Well, we get some insight into how he dealt with it. Uh, many years later in life, uh, in Egypt, when he had a family, because of the, the names that he gave to his two sons. I wonder if you can check that out with me for a few moments. Uh, in Genesis chapter 41... In verse 51, Genesis 41, verse 51, it tells us Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, and I quote, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. See that? Why did he call his son Manasseh? Well, because... You see, obviously Joseph remembered what his brothers had done to him, but that was his old reality. And the memory of the evil that had happened to him, well, it no longer filled his mind and his heart. He accepted that new reality. He no longer saw himself as being a brother. He no longer saw himself as being the son of Jacob, the the, the, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham. He no longer saw that as his reality, 
He called his son Manasseh because God had helped him to forget, God had made him to forget his father's household. And we can understand that, can't we? I mean, how else would he cope uh, with his new reality? What about his second son? What did he name his second boy? Well, verse 52. The second son he named Ephraim. And he said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, I actually think that's what the the rest of this whole section that we're looking at today is all about. He named his son Ephraim because God had made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. Now let's think about the suffering first. Uh, What did he mean by that? Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, Flight Lieutenant uh, Russell Adams of the RAAF has been on the media. Have you noticed that? Ladies, have you noticed that? Okay. Uh, Well, he's been on the news because he's been uh, reporting on the search for MH370. And when I first saw him on the TV with a a bank of of, uh, microphones in front of him as he stepped off his aircraft and into the waiting media pack, when I first saw him and heard him speak, I thought, isn't it great to have uh, intelligent, articulate... Uh, pilots like him on the job. Then I discovered that he had actually become the news story because uh, thousands of women all around the world were thinking, isn't it great to have good-looking pilots like him on the job? Flight Lieutenant Russell Adams, ladies, if you want to jot down that name, you can Google search it later. (laughs) Only kidding. (laughs) Well, in chapter 39, verse 6, Joseph is described as being well-built and handsome. Uh, He had been purchased on the slave market by Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's top officials. And just like the RAAF pilot, Joseph wasn't just good-looking, he had brains. And so he wasn't put out to work as a labouring kind of slave on the fields, no, He was given a a desk job. He was appointed to be the manager of Potiphar's entire household. But for Mrs. Potiphar, having Joseph around and having Mr. Potiphar out of the house, well, that was just too much for her. And uh, she caved into temptation and she invited Joseph to join her in her bed. Now, people have been talking all week about Peter's sermon last week, um, about uh, Judah and Tamar and the things that uh, happened and so on. Last week we learned about Judah, uh, Joseph's oldest son, how when he saw the chance for sex uh, with a what he assumed he'd be a prostitute along the road, uh, he, he jumped at the opportunity, didn't he? he? He had no problems. He didn't hesitate hopping into the sack with her. But not his younger brother. Have a look in chapter 39, verses 8 to 10. In verse 8, uh, this is how Joseph reacted to Mrs. Potiphar's advances. We're told, but he refused. 
And he said, well, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Smart man. Uh, The Bible says flee from sexual immorality. But you see, he's a young man of honour, isn't he? He's a man of integrity. He values his good position. He appreciates everything that his master has done for him and one thing he will not do is he will not rob his master he will not steal his wife away from him so and that's because unlike his older brother one thing that joseph has not forgotten about is god and that that would be a sin against god and so he refuses now, what does they say? Hell hath no fury like a, what is it? A woman scorned. I don't think that's theologically correct, by the way, because it, uh, uh, a woman scorned, right? You don't want to mess with her, but hell, uh, well, that, I think it devalues hell and the fury of hell. But nevertheless, Mrs. Potiphar gives the saying some meaning because in verses 11 through to 20, she is angry. I'm not sure if she's ever had someone refuse her advances like that. She's offended and she obviously feels very guilty. And so what does she do? Well, the guilty always accuse the innocent is something I've learned in life. And uh, she accuses Joseph of attempting to rape her. And so her husband has Joseph thrown into prison. That's surprising, isn't it, that he would do that? I mean, you'd you'd have to think this. A a Hebrew slave accused of attempting to rape uh, his master, his master's wife, who happens to be a top official of Pharaoh, do you think being chucked into prison is the appropriate sentence for that? You'd have to think that uh, you'd have his head lopped off, wouldn't you, for doing a crime like that or being accused? So why is it that Potiphar doesn't do that? Well, we're not told. It makes you wonder if maybe... Potiphar didn't entirely believe the story. Maybe Mrs. Potiphar had a bit of a track record. But for whatever reason, he doesn't do it. And we see under the surface that God is actually at work preserving his life. But again, his reality has changed, hasn't he? From a, being in charge of a wealthy household, suddenly he now finds himself to be a criminal in prison. Mind you, it wasn't just any old prison. Uh, in chapter 30, verse, verse 39, verse 20, this was the prison where the king's personal um, prisoners were locked up. And that is why in, verse, in chapter 40, Joseph now gets to meet two of Pharaoh's top servants. He meets the cupbearer who served Pharaoh his wine, And he meets the baker who served Pharaoh his, obviously, his bread. Uh, By the way, 
why do you think the cupbearer and the baker might have been in prison together? It may be the case that someone had tried to poison Pharaoh because uh, whenever Pharaoh got sick and they thought it was from poisoning, the uh, investigation would turn on the, the kitchen staff or the people who served him food and drink. So maybe, we're not told, but maybe that's why both the baker and the cupbearer are in prison. So they're now behind bars, where in chapter 40, verses 4 through to 5, both of them experience some rather vivid dreams. Now, in the ancient world, dreams were treated with a degree of seriousness, uh, particularly by the cultures who were without a revealed knowledge of God, that uh, when they, people had dreams, they often saw dreams as being a, a portent or a, a warning of something catastrophic uh, or at least something momentous that was about to happen. And so they, they took dreams very, very seriously. Now, of course, uh, God, we know in the Old Testament, uses dreams, doesn't he? Uh, God also would reveal himself to people by means of dreams. Not just to people who were a part of his people, Israel, but also to pagans. Um, for example, King Nebuchadnezzar. He had some pretty amazing dreams that God used to reveal things to him. And, uh, but then there's God's people who also received dreams, like Daniel received dreams. We Christians don't need for God to reveal himself to us through dreams. God may reveal himself through dreams. We can't, we can't put God in a box and say he can't do certain things, but God has no need to reveal himself to us in dreams because God's full revelation of himself, everything which we need to know in order to be saved, in order to live a godly life, has been fully revealed to us and is recorded for us in the pages of the scriptures. And so that's why we read and mark and learn and study and meditate upon God's word in the scriptures. But these two men had some rather vivid dreams. And uh, the cupbearer, he had no idea what his dream meant. So in verse 8, Joseph believed that that God, and God alone is the one who could interpret the dream, but that God would use him to give the interpretation. And it's good news, because he interprets the cupbearer's dream and he says, look, this is the meaning of the dream. The meaning is that within three days, all will be forgiven for you. That uh, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your previous position as his cupbearer. Um, but check out what Joseph says next in chapter 40, verse 14. He says to him, But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, when you, 
back in the good books with Pharaoh, tell him about me so that I'm not forgotten. Plead my case before Pharaoh. What about the baker? Well, the baker apparently, he hears the good news that the cupbearer has received about the interpretation of his dream and he thinks, well, I might like to get my dream interpreted as well. I'd like some good news. And he doesn't get good news. In fact, it's rather discouraging uh, for the baker because when Joseph tells him the interpretation of his dream, in verse 19, the, Joseph says, well, the meaning of the dream is this, that within three days... Pharaoh is going to hang you from a tree and your flesh is going to be eaten up by birds. And then he said, is there another interpretation of the dream, please? <laughs> now that was bad news. And in verses 20 through to 22, both interpretations came true. Pharaoh invited both of these men to his birthday party where he delivered the good news to the cupbearer and he turned the baker into food for birds. Be careful when a ruler invites you to his birthday party. But did the cupbearer remember to plead Joseph's case to Pharaoh? No, he completely forgot. And so sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused and imprisoned, and now forgotten and languishing in a dungeon, it's no wonder that Joseph described Egypt in the name of his son, Ephraim, as the land of my suffering. But the name Ephraim also means that, that in that land of suffering that God had made him fruitful. How so? Well, in chapter 41, Pharaoh himself now has some rather strange dreams. Let me read the dreams to you. In chapter 41, verse 1. Got it? When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed around the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. How about that? Carnivorous cows. Carnivorous and what do you... And what's that? Aquatic, aquatic, carnivorous and cannibalistic cows that eat another cow and then they just look skinny after that. So then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Imagine that. Grain that eats other grain. Must have teeth. And then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. I bet he was glad to hear there was a dream. But not really because in his world, in his thinking, the dream had a meaning. What did the dreams mean? And these dreams, they, they weren't in the magician's textbook. 
the, the, he called together the wise men and the magicians of Egypt to interpret the dreams and they didn't have the foggiest idea. And then the cupbearer, the cupbearer thought of himself, hang on a moment, Joseph. And he told Pharaoh about this man that he'd met in prison and what had happened then in verse 14, Joseph is now brought up from the dungeon into the court of the Pharaoh. But before he got there, in verse 14, we're told that Joseph had a shave and he changed his clothes. Now, I guess if I was going to meet the Queen, I might have a shave and I might iron my shirt and put on some night. But I think it's more than that that's involved in this. You see, Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew men, it was their culture to wear thick, long beards. And they wore colourful clothes. That was their culture. But Egyptian men were more sophisticated than that. In fact, they looked down on that kind of thick beard and colourful clothes. Uh, Egyptian men had shaved faces and they wore white linen clothes. And so it may well be that, uh, that it's seen appropriate for Joseph to actually appear before Pharaoh more as an Egyptian than as a Hebrew. Just uh, keep that thought in your mind. Because in the presence then of, of Pharaoh and under God, Joseph now interprets the dreams. And he answers this. For seven years, Egyptian farmers were going to experience a bumper crop, a great harvest for seven years. But then for, for seven years following that, there is going to be a severe famine. There's not going to be much of a crop whatsoever. Now, if you're a farmer or if you're someone who's trying to run a country, that is incredibly valuable news to have. And so what it means, therefore, is, that, and this is what uh, Joseph suggests, uh, is that Pharaoh really needs to appoint someone, someone who, is, someone who is wise, someone who's not corrupt, he needs to appoint someone to, and give them executive control over operations so that uh, with, within the next seven years that there's a 20% tax on all, uh, all the harvest and all of, the, 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 all of that harvest that is taxed is stored away so that in the following seven years they can actually keep the, keep the people fed, keep them alive. And a person must be a person who is wise and a person of integrity because they're going to have to be the one responsible for the distribution of the food during the famine. And we know even in our own uh, world today sometimes how difficult it is to, to get the, the famine relief to the people who actually need it because of corruption with government officials who line their own pockets. So that's the interpretation of the dream. But now have a look at uh, chapter 41 and verses 39 uh, through to 41. Verse 39, this is how Pharaoh reacts to this news. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and as wise as you, 
You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. That's an incredible reality change, isn't it? You know, the old reality is Hebrew slave. The new reality is the ruler over Egypt under Pharaoh. Clean-shaven, robed in white linen, he's also given Pharaoh's signet ring, which is what he can actually use as a stamp to sign off on official documents. So he's got the full authority of Pharaoh, that's in that signet ring, and uh, he's given a chariot, so he now rides on a chariot with men going before him shouting out to people to make way because Joseph is... This is like the US presidential cavalcade, you know, the, all the limousines. In verse 42, he was given an Egyptian name. Out with his Hebrew name, in with an Egyptian name. He's given an Egyptian name. He's given an Egyptian wife who is the daughter of the priest of an Egyptian god. And so, friends, what we see here is the Egyptianization of Joseph. His old reality as, as the son of Jacob was now gone, was now stripped away, was now wiped from memory. This is Joseph the Egyptian. Or was the old reality stripped away? Was it gone from his memory? Friends, throughout his suffering, Joseph actually did remember his past. He had not forgotten God. When tempted by Potiphar's wife, he refused to sin against God. When interpreting dreams, he was not puffed up with pride, but he made it clear that God alone could interpret the dreams. It seems that through the roller coaster of his life, that somewhere in his heart, Joseph knew that God had not forgotten him. Now think about the dreams that Pharaoh had. How many dreams did Pharaoh had? He had two dreams. Why did God give Pharaoh two dreams which basically said the same thing. Well, have a look. Chapter 41, verse 32. This is what Joseph says. Having told him that the two dreams are essentially the same dream, they mean the same thing, he says to Pharaoh in verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Why two dreams? Because that's confirmation. That's saying that God has firmly decided this. There's no doubts about it. This will happen. And it'll happen soon. What about Joseph himself? I mean, he had coped by forgetting about his life before Egypt, by forgetting about his brothers, by forgetting about his father. But how many dreams did Joseph have? 
He had two dreams, didn't he? What about those dreams that he had? What about those dreams where Joseph was in the centre and surrounded by his brothers and his family and they all bowed down to him? How many dreams did he have? Two dreams. Which by his own words mean that God has has firmly decided that matter. And so was that life really over? Or was God in his sovereignty positioning Joseph for the fulfilment of those two dreams? Friends, God often allows his people to suffer uh, in order to achieve his good purposes for them and his good plan and purpose for the world. We know that in our own lives sometimes, don't we? That through suffering that uh, we learn more about what it means to depend on God, that through suffering we learn more about, a bit about perseverance and we learn more about the goodness of God. I think of the Apostle Paul when, when he suffered. <coughs> when, Paul was, uh, when Paul was imprisoned, he was able to write to the Christians and to say that uh, in the context of him being in prison, that God was nevertheless sovereignly at work achieving his purposes. Because guess what the prison guard heard all about? Guess what the fellow prisoners heard all about? Guess what all all of Caesar's household heard about? They heard about the reason why Paul was in prison. They heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Joseph could not actually erase the memory of the evil and the hatred of his brothers. But as we'll see next week, when they did come and bow the knee to him, as he provided for them the grain that would keep the dream alive, that would keep the family of the descendants of Abraham eating and alive, when they came to him, when they bowed the knee to him, what did he say to them? He was able to look them in the eye. He was able to say to them with with resolute confidence that the new reality which they had inflicted upon him had in fact been the sovereign work of God. For in that new reality, the very thing which they intended for evil, that God had in fact used for good, for the saving of many people, And we're going to learn more about that next week as we wrap up the series or as we uh, look at that next section and uh, wrap it up the following week. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are a sovereign God. Father, we thank you that uh, you've worked through the lives of people in history and that you worked through Joseph. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would be confident that when things happen in our own lives that we can't control and seem to be uh, out of our plans, that uh, indeed uh, you are in, in fact at work. And we thank you for that. 
We thank you, Father God, that in your sovereignty in the book of Genesis, uh, in the imprisonment and the positioning of Joseph, that uh, you created the circumstances by which your people would eventually be uh, involved in the exodus from Egypt and the great salvation that that brought and the model that points us towards Jesus and what he's done on the cross. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.